one of the greatest narco stories of all time. Today, we take a look at the life and times of Kiki Camarena. We're going to look at what led him to take a job with this brand new agency that they called the DEA. We're going to look at what drew him from the United States down to Guadalajara, Mexico, which in 1980 was the center of drug trafficking and government corruption in North America. So what happened to him? Who was involved? Well, you're going to find out in today's episode. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we are going to look at the life of Kiki Camarena, where he grew up, and how he and his family wound up in Guadalajara, Mexico. We're going to look at what was going on politically in the world in 1980 and the massive amount of drug trafficking that was taking place, much of it with governmental approval. We're going to look at the government agencies that were involved. We're going to look at the CIA, we're going to look at the DEA, and we're going to look at the DFS, which was the Mexican CIA at that time. We're, of course, going to talk about the Guadalajara cartel and its major players and its role in all this, and we're going to see how all of those fit together in the kidnapping, the torture, and the ultimate murder of Kiki Camarena. Then we're going to look at the prosecution of those that were involved and all of the finger pointing that has gone on between government agencies and that is still going on today. We're going to look at each agency's potential complicity in the murder. So we're going to go through all of that information to get to the bottom of just who was involved in the kidnapping and murder. If you enjoy the episode, hit that like button for me. If you got something to say, put it in the comment section below. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe to the channel and hit that notification button so you get notified every time we upload. And as always, I love it when you share me on social media. And remember that Lawyer Up is available on all major podcast formats. Now for the disclaimer, number one, I don't speak Spanish. Okay, I'm a white boy from the Ozarks. I do my best with pronunciations, but you'll have to forgive me if I mess up with names or places. And number two, this story has a lot of conflicting evidence. There are conspiracy theories and rabbit holes, more than any story that I've ever done. So if you've heard something different, that's not surprising to me. In fact, it would be more surprising if Everything I said is exactly what you had heard about this story. So in this video, I simply try to present you with information that is available. Then you can decide what you believe about what happened to Kiki Camarena. So let's begin with his early life. Enrique Kiki Camarena Salazar was born in 1947 in the impoverished border town of Mexicali, Mexico. His family immigrated to Calexico, California when he was a child, and that is where Kiki graduated high school from in 1966. After graduating, Kiki joined the Marines for a couple of years, 
and then he returned to Calexico to work for the fire department and then ultimately the police department. From there, Kiki was hired by a newly created federal law enforcement agency called the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA. Kiki went from its Calexico office to the Fresno field office where he worked undercover on smuggling activities in the San Joaquin Valley. In 1980, a colleague and a close friend who had moved to the DEA office in Guadalajara, Mexico, suggested that Camarena also apply for work at that office. At the time, he was married to Mika Camarena, and they had a son and one on the way. But they were ready for a change of scenery, so they decided to make the move. Lured by Guadalajara's spring-like weather, the city's Americanized school, and a de facto pay raise. Because, hey, let's face it, when you are paid in U.S. dollars, but your expenses are in pesos, it makes that paycheck go a lot farther. So Kiki Camarena began working in the DEA office in Guadalajara, Mexico in 1980. Now, we have to take a major detour because in 1980 there was a lot going on in the world that we really need to understand so that we can fully understand the mess that Kiki was stepping into. First and foremost, we have to talk a little bit about world politics. In 1980, the United States was still in the middle of the Cold War, which started following World War II, and that was between the United States and the Western Bloc countries and the Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc allies. Now, it was during this Cold War that the United States and Mexico became allies against the common enemy of communism and the Soviet Union. In doing so, the United States CIA partnered with the Mexican government to establish their own CIA-type agency. It was called the Federal Security Directorate, or DFS. At the time, the main objective of both the CIA and the DFS was to keep communism from gaining a foothold in the Western Hemisphere at all costs. Now, you know what else happened in 1980? Ronald Reagan was elected president of the United States. And those of you that know your presidential history know that his main focus was also to fight communism. And the main agency that he used to do that? Well, that was the CIA. Now, the United States already had some problems with Cuba and Fidel Castro, who were thorns in their side. And in 1980, the communist Sandinistas had just gained control of the government in Nicaragua after a bloody revolution, which further threatened the United States in President Reagan's eyes. So starting in 1980, the United States backed a resistance group generally referred to as the Contras in Nicaragua. Now, Contra is short for Contra Revolution or Counter-Revolution in English. And their mission was to topple the communist government that was run by the Sandinistas who had taken control in Nicaragua. So the Contras were originally publicly backed by the United States, both financially and with arms. Then they engaged in some terrorist attacks on not only the Sandinistans, but also on civilian sites. And after some human atrocities came to light, 
public opinion in the United States of their support began to wane. So in 1982, Congress officially forbid any further support of the Contras by the U.S. government. But without financial and armed support from the United States, the Contras really had no chance, and that would mean communism would win. Well, President Reagan wasn't about to stand for that. So he continued to support the Contras under the table through the CIA. But now that it was forbidden by Congress, they had to find out a sneaky way to go about it. And they came up with essentially two ways. Number one, the United States sold arms to Iran, the proceeds from which Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North secretly diverted to the Contras in Nicaragua. This was, of course, prohibited by Congress, and a scandal erupted into what is now referred to as the Iran-Contra scandal. Now, we're not getting into that in this video. I have an entire video dedicated to the history of the CIA and drug trafficking on this channel that dives into this topic in more detail if you are interested. Now, the second way that the Contras were receiving financial support was from illegal drug trafficking. And with the Iran Arms Avenue basically dead, the drug connection, which was protected by the CIA, became of supreme importance. Now, for those of you out there that are skeptical of the CIA's involvement in the Contra drug trafficking, don't be. The United States has already admitted it. In 1989, the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations issued the Kerry Report, which was the result of an investigation into drug trafficking from South America, Central America, and Mexico into the United States. And the report concluded that, quote, it is clear that individuals in the United States who provided support to the Contras were involved in drug trafficking. The supply network of the Contras was used by drug trafficking organizations, and the Contras themselves knowingly received financial and material assistance from the CIA and drug traffickers. Now, the Kerry Report was on the heels of a series of articles written by Gary Webb, later published in a book called The Dark Alliance, The CIA, Contras, and the Crack Cocaine Explosion. That book concluded that the Nicaraguans linked to CIA-backed Contras had smuggled cocaine into the United States, which was cut and sold as crack cocaine in Los Angeles, with the profits funneled back to the Contras in Nicaragua. His articles asserted that the CIA was aware of these cocaine transactions and other large shipments of drugs into the United States and directly assisted drug dealers to raise money for the Contras. Now, these allegations, of course, have always been disputed by the CIA. However, it's a fairly accepted fact that the CIA was allowing drugs to flow into the United States to fund efforts to defeat communism in Nicaragua. So that is what was going on politically. Now we need to talk about what was going on with the individual government agencies that were involved. And let's start with the DEA, that is the Drug Enforcement Administration. It is a federal law enforcement agency under the Department of Justice that is the lead agency for the domestic enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act. So DEA agents are law enforcement in the United States, but things change when you send a DEA agent out of the country. 
So these agents that are stationed in Mexico and other countries then and now are subject to a number of restrictions by the host country. Namely, they have no law enforcement powers. They can't arrest anybody. Instead, they perform intelligence, liaison, advisory, and informant functions, collecting and passing along information on drug trafficking to local anti-narcotics law enforcement agencies. Now, that can be counterproductive if those local law enforcement agencies are also working with drug cartels. But more on that a little later. Now, while the DEA was brand new to Mexico in 1980, the CIA had been operating there for decades. So when we turn our attention to the CIA, the important thing to remember are these. Number one, they are not law enforcement. People say, well, how can the CIA stand around and watch these things happen? It's because they're not law enforcement. Number two, they are authorized by law to operate covertly. That means secretly. So while all other government bodies need to be open, they need to be transparent, not so with the CIA. And number three, the CIA operates with a morality that the ends justify the means or that the end goal is the focus and it is to be achieved by any means necessary. And that's also opposed to traditional law enforcement like the DEA that has to follow the law on the way to its goal. Not so with the CIA. So what is that goal? Well, for the first few decades of its existence, the CIA was focused on repelling the advancement of communism around the globe. Now, since 9-11, the focus has changed to more of a counterterrorism function with cyber terrorism really emerging as the newest area of focus for the CIA. But back in 1980, the focus was to stop communism. And remember, the CIA does not have a military fleet at their disposal, so they have been creative over the years in covertly generating manpower, arms, and money to fight their secret wars. And this includes a history of looking the other way, protecting and sometimes downright participating in the trafficking of illegal arms and contraband to serve the greater interests of the United States. Now let's talk about the DFS. That's the Federal Security Directorate in Mexico. That is, or at least was, the Mexican Secret Intelligence Agency. It was created in 1947 with direct help from the United States CIA. Now, people in America think that our CIA engages in lawlessness, but I can tell you that the Mexican DFS makes the American CIA look like a bunch of choir boys. The DFS was accused of hundreds of illegal detentions, tortures, assassinations, and forced disappearances. At least 350 complaints were received by the United Nations related to DFS crimes from 1960 through 1980. The DFS criminal exploits include collaborating in drug trafficking with the Guadalajara cartel, specifically providing protection to cartel members and their large marijuana crops, and in murdering about anybody who is investigating the ties between the DFS, the CIA, and drug traffickers. Several DFS agents were not only linked to working with criminal organizations, but more than one of the former agents left the agency to assume a leadership role in the cartel. 
This agency was highly successful at thwarting and deterring any attempt by pro-Soviet organizations to destabilize the country. However, it was a notoriously controversial government entity that was ultimately disbanded, or as the Mexican government likes to say, merged into the Center for Investigation and National Security. Now, let's look at the main cartel that was used to traffic the contraband, and that is the Guadalajara Cartel. So if we go back a little bit into the early 70s, there were several smaller competing marijuana growers or plazas, as they were called in Mexico. But by the late 70s, three men were able to bring most of these warring factions together to form a powerful cartel. Miguel Angel Felix Guiardo, who goes by Felix Guiardo or El Padrino or The Godfather, was one. Two was Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, who goes by Don Neto. And the third was Rafael Caro Quintero, who goes by Rafa. These three coordinated their production and operations and formed the core of what became known as the Guadalajara Cartel, or GC for short. Now, they were the first Mexican cartel to produce high-quality seedless marijuana in mass quantities from large multi-acre fields. They were also the first Mexican cartel to start working with Colombian cocaine cartels in assisting trafficking of cocaine across the United States border. Now, each of these leaders played a little bit of a different role. Felix Gallardo was the overall leader. He was a shrewd businessman, fiercely intelligent, but brutal. And he essentially ran the GC between 1980 and 1989. And just as a footnote, El Chapo got his big break with the Guadalajara cartel as a driver for Gallardo. And Guillardo liked El Chapo so much that soon he was in charge of logistics, where he coordinated drug shipments from Colombia to Mexico. But that's another story in another video also on this channel called The History of El Chapo. I would encourage you to check it out if you haven't. Next was Rafa, and he was the marijuana genius. He brought the new seedless variety of marijuana to Guadalajara. And essentially, the concept is all female plants, which have not been pollinated, so they do not waste time producing seeds. Only THC. It produced a more powerful, higher quality variety of weed. And finally, Don Neto was the marijuana farmer. And remember, these were huge marijuana plantations. Don Neto was the marijuana farmer with a cocaine habit that became much more pronounced after the accidental death of his son. But his main role was the farming. So those were the players. The DEA's job was to stop the flow of drugs from Mexico into the United States. And they had the Mexican military on their side. The CIA and the DFS's job was to facilitate the flow of drugs from Mexico into the United States to fund the Contras. And they had the local police in Mexico on their side. So you have one trying to protect the drug trade and the other trying to stop it in an era when the Drug Enforcement Administration was still an underappreciated agency. And from the government's perspective, Defeating global communism was more important than one man or one organization's efforts to defeat a drug cartel. 
So, do you see the problem yet? By the time Kiki took his post in Guadalajara in the summer of 1980, drug trafficking in Mexico was ramping up. As Mika Camarena, his wife, would later say, he was the kind of guy who just wanted to keep the streets safe. He saw the possibility and the signs of an empire being built, this narcotics empire, and he wanted to put an end to it. Many of Camarena's investigations involved the major marijuana plantations that sprang up in the early 80s. DEA agents in Mexico concentrated on cultivating informants, which was often a difficult task because informing results in a death sentence if it's discovered you are an informant. Camarena, however, he excelled at working with informants. It was said that nobody else in the Guadalajara office could match Kiki's charisma with informants. He had a way of convincing a man to, quote, screw up his courage and venture where he never dreamed he would go. Kiki was described as a natural in the street and able to slip effortlessly into any accent or spout off Mexican gutter slang, whatever the role demanded. And if you think about it, you have a Hispanic male who was actually born in Mexico and who speaks perfect Spanish. He's familiar with Guadalajara and its history because his grandmother lived there and he visited as a child. So if you're a drug dealer and you're sitting across the table with this guy, you're 1,300 miles south of the American border. This guy looks Hispanic. He talks Hispanic. He knows about Guadalajara. There's no way this dude is U.S. drug enforcement. There's no way. So people trusted this guy, and that's exactly why he was the perfect DEA agent for the job. So Camarena's first really big break was with an informant they called Miguel Sanchez, and it led to the discovery of one of the larger marijuana plantations in 1982. Camarena arranged two overflights to confirm that it was a major plantation. He then briefed the Mexican military who raided the plantation in September. And to everyone's astonishment, the plantation was over 200 acres of marijuana, and it employed thousands of growers. And the DEA estimated over 4,000 tons of marijuana were destroyed in the raid making it the largest marijuana plantation ever busted in Mexico up until that time. So this got everybody's attention real quick, but it was nothing compared to what was to come. In 1984, acting on information from Camarena and the DEA, 450 Mexican soldiers backed by helicopters destroyed a 2,500-acre marijuana plantation in Chihuahua with an estimated annual production of billions of dollars. Not million, billions. This plantation was known as Rancho Buffalo. This was an unbelievable blow to the Guadalajara cartel and to the United States' ability through the CIA and the DFS to fund ongoing operations of the Contras in Nicaragua. So Kiki had become quite the problem. Now all along, the DEA had been sharing information with the CIA because the two entities were presumably working together. Well, the CIA was using the information provided by Camarena and the DEA, but it wasn't working with them to eradicate the flow of drugs into the United States. It was protecting it. 
The DEA says by January of 1985, Kiki was extremely close to unlocking a multi-billion dollar drug pipeline involving the CIA, DFS, Mexican government officials, politicians, local police, and the cartel. And it was because he was about to expose this entire operation that he was abducted in broad daylight on February 7th of 1985 as he walked down the street on his way to have lunch with his wife. Kiki was surrounded by five armed men, a mixture of DFS and GC guys, who threw him into a car. He was blindfolded and held at gunpoint as they sped away. Camarena was taken to 881 Lopa de Vega Drive in western Guadalajara. It was a mansion that was then owned by Rafa, who was later determined to be the one who had ordered this abduction. There, Kiki was beaten, tortured, and interrogated over a 30-hour period. His skull, jaw, nose, and cheekbones were crushed with a metal rod, his skull was punctured and his ribs were broken. As he lied dying, a cartel doctor was ordered to keep him alert by administering adrenaline and other drugs. Ultimately, Camarena's body was found almost 30 days later, wrapped in plastic and ditched next to a ranch in a rural area in the state of Michoacan. He was 37 years old and he left behind Mika and three children, Enrique, Daniel, and Eric. It should also be noted that Alfredo Zavala Avalar, who worked for the Mexican Agricultural Department and who was Kiki's pilot, was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered right alongside Camarena. And his body was also discovered at the same location in Mexico. Camarena's torture and murder prompted a swift reaction from the United States DEA, which launched Operation Leyenda, or Legend, the largest DEA homicide investigation ever undertaken. Investigators soon identified Felix Guiardo and his two close associates, Don Neto and Rafa, as the primary suspects. Under pressure from the United States government, the Mexican officials were quickly able to apprehend Don Neto and Rafa, but Felix Guiardo was able to evade arrest until 1989. Over the next several years, the United States government pursued a lengthy investigation of Camarena's murder and ultimately brought 14 individuals to justice in the United States. Interestingly, Dr. Umberto Alvarez, who was the physician who allegedly prolonged Camarena's life so that the torture could continue, he was brought to trial in Los Angeles in 1992 and acquitted on all charges. In the end, he was the only one that was tried that was actually not convicted. Two other particularly relevant defendants included Juan Ramon Mata Ballesteros and Ruben Zuno Arce, who were both tried and found guilty of involvement in Camarena's murder. Now, Mata Ballesteros he was a Honduran drug smuggler and was the main cocaine connection between the Guadalajara cartel and the Panamanian and Colombian cartels. He facilitated that relationship. He also used his airline Setco to run cocaine to Mexico and then weapons to the Contras in Nicaragua. He was convicted for being one of the kidnappers of Camarena. Now, Zuno, he was a businessman and a socialite and the brother-in-law of a former Mexican president, and he was known to have 
ties to corrupt Mexican officials. So Zuno was the liaison between the Guadalajara cartel, the Mexican officials, and local police who were all implicated in covering up and destroying evidence in Kiki's murder. He was also the former owner of the mansion where Kiki was tortured. Now, before we get to what happened with the big three, Gallardo, Rafa, and Don Neto, we need to talk about the evidence of complicity of the CIA, the DFS, and the DEA. And the most recent information on this topic comes to us from The Last Narc, which is a docu-series about Agent Camarena's death. This series was released by Amazon in July of 2020. The Last Narc is described as an expose about the entangled relationship between the CIA, DEA, and the Mexican government, the DFS, and the Guadalajara cartel. The documentary's director, Tiller Russell, researched Camarena's murder for 14 years, and then he shot and edited The Last Narc for two years. Now, the series interviews DEA agents and witnesses who state that Kiki was murdered by Mexican drug lords with the complicity of the CIA and the DEA and, of course, the DFS. Since its release, Russell has kept his location a secret, fearing for his safety. Now, the docu-series interviews the DEA agent who spearheaded the investigation of Camarena's death. That is Hector Bareles. He stated that the DFS's main role during this time was to protect the drug lord. He also stated that during his investigation of the case, he came into possession of audio tapes of portions of the torture and the interrogation of Kiki. Ultimately, two voices other than Camarena's were identified on the tape. That's Carol Quintero of the Guadalajara cartel, or Rafa, as I've been referring to him, and then Sergio Espino Verdin, who is a commander with the DFS. So we know for certain that the Guadalajara cartel was there, and at least a representative of the Mexican Secret Service was involved in the torture and interrogation of Kiki. And remember who worked hand-in-hand with the DFS? Why, that was the American CIA. Now, the show specifically states that CIA agent Felix Rodriguez helped torture Camarena to learn what he knew about the U.S. CIA connections to Mexican drug cartels. Now, this is super controversial, but according to the show, Camarena was killed because he was going to disclose these connections. Now, Rodriguez has a long history of clandestine CIA service in Latin America. He has interrogated and assassinated other people, including at one time being tasked with the assassination of Fidel Castro. So knowing his history, if anyone in the CIA was tapped to be involved in a torture and murder in Mexico, it would probably have been him. Also knowing his history, if you're looking for somebody to throw under the bus and to falsely accuse, he would be the first choice as well. So the world may never actually know the extent of his involvement. Now, Phil Jordan, a former DEA intelligence director, stated that he was told by Mexican authorities that the CIA operatives are the ones that actually conducted the bulk of the unrecorded interrogations. They weren't dumb enough to record themselves during the interrogation. Mike Holm the DEA agent in charge of Guadalajara when Camarena was kidnapped, said that Camarena cost the cartels billions of dollars when his investigations led the Mexican army to burn down Rancho Buffalo. 
but that he earned substantially more enemies by discovering that the CIA was working with the cartels to fund the anti-communist Contras in Nicaragua. The docu-series shoots footage in the home where Camarena was tortured and murdered, that 881 Lopa de Vega Drive in Guadalajara, which today is, oddly enough, an elementary school. The show also interviewed cartel bodyguards who stated that there were 50 to 60 people in the house during the torture of Camarena. Cartel members, members of the CIA, the DEA, the DFS, Mexican police, politicians, and the like. And former Mexican police officer George Godoy testified in exchange for immunity that he was present at meetings where a DEA official and a CIA operative attended and where Camarena's abduction was planned and discussed. So who was the DEA agent involved? Well, the last narc levels accusations of complicity directly at DEA agent Jaime Kirkendall, who was Camarena's direct supervisor in Guadalajara. Now, this is somewhat of a new accusation, and it is very, very controversial. Kirkendall wrote a book back in 2005 called O Plata O Ploma, which translates to silver or lead. Silver meaning money and lead meaning bullets. This is a familiar Spanish saying, which means that you will either accept the bribe or you will accept the bullets. It's literally an offer that you can't refuse. This book detailed Kirkendall's first-hand account of searching for Camarena and his ultimate grisly discovery of his body. In his book, he accused Mexican government officials of destroying evidence and protecting the drug cartel. Now, since then, he has spoken out about the CIA as well. Kirkendall is quoted in the book Whiteout, the CIA Drugs and the Press, as stating that DEA officers investigating Camarena's death knew that Kiki's murder was a joint operation between the drug cartel and the DFS. He said the CIA didn't give a damn about anything but the Soviets and communism. Indirectly, the CIA has to take some of the blame. He also alleged that the CIA protected the DFS for decades, even when they got out of hand. As to these new allegations in the last NARC that he himself was involved, Kirkendall hasn't made a public statement, but on December 21st of 2020, he filed a defamation lawsuit against Amazon over the show's claims that he was involved in Camarena's murder. And for the record, the CIA and the DEA have denied any involvement in Camarena's death whatsoever. The CIA has said in response to allegations that it is ridiculous to suggest that the CIA had anything to do with the murder of a U.S. federal agent. And when we look at the evidence, I think it's fairly clear that the CIA as a whole or the DEA as a whole were not involved in Camarena's murder. But was one individual or two individuals or three individuals of the DEA or the CIA involved? That is possible. So what government entities were involved and to what extent? Well, that's for you to decide. Now let's talk about the big three. Camarena's murder and the subsequent investigation and prosecution effectively led to the end of the Guadalajara cartel. So where are they now? Well, Felix Gallardo essentially ran the GC between 1980 and 1989. Now after Kiki's death, he stayed on the lam for four years. He was finally arrested in 1989. 
Amazingly, from there, Gallardo's prosecution went on for almost three decades. And although he's been in custody since 1989, there were trials and then appeals and then retrials and then more appeals. And Gallardo wasn't finally sentenced until 2017 by a Mexican court, which gave him 37 years for the death of Camarena. He is presently serving that out in prison in Mexico. Let's talk about Carol Quintero Orafa, who was the seedless marijuana guy. Based primarily on the audio tapes of the torture and interrogation, it is clear that Rafa directed the kidnapping and the murder of Camarena. He was convicted of the murder, but then was released on a technicality in 2013. And by the time corrected its misstep, Rafa was long gone. Today, both Mexico and the United States have a warrant out for his arrest, and he is on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. But he remains at large and is rumored to be the current leader of the Caborca cartel in Sonora. Turning to Don Neto, he was the marijuana farmer. He was also convicted in the death of Kiki. He was sentenced to 40 years but was released to house arrest in 2016 due to his declining health. And just as a footnote, in 1989, with all of the bosses in jail, several leading members of the GC met and ultimately agreed to divide up territories previously run by the syndicate. And this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but effectively what happened was Gallardo's family formed the Tijuana cartel and they controlled West or Northwest Mexico. The Fuentes family formed the Juarez cartel, which basically controlled Northeast Mexico, and El Chapo and company formed the now famous Sinaloa cartel. When we talk about the Camarena family, Kiki was honored in life and in death. He has received many, many awards and is considered an American hero. After death, he even received the Administrator's Award of Honor, which is the highest honor awarded by the DEA. Mika Camarena, whose given name is Geneva, and who was high school sweethearts with Kiki after his death, formed the Enrique Camarena Foundation in 2004, and she dedicates her time to promoting drug awareness in schools and communities. Kiki Camarena's oldest son, Enrique, is now a judge in California after serving as a deputy district attorney for several years. Kiki has scholarships in his name and a school and a library and a street in his hometown are named after him. In November of 1988, Time Magazine featured him on the cover. And Kiki is the subject of books and articles and TV shows too numerous to mention. But if you want to see this whole story play out on the big screen, the first season of the series Narcos Mexico is dedicated entirely to the story of Kiki Camarena. So that's the episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, hit that like button for me. If you have a question or you have a comment or you have an additional theory about how this unfolded, put it in the comment sections below. Remember to hit that subscribe button and also the notifications. Turn those on so that you get notified every time we upload. And last but not least, you guys know it. I love it when you share me on social media. I thank you for watching. My name is Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money.